Hello and welcome back to Shout Scratch. You're listening to episode 80, Concerns About a Colleague. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where medical students, junior doctors and expert guests come together and discuss all the things you need to know to be a good doctor, but like you might not get to a medical school. I'm Pat, I'm a fourth year medical student at Anglia Ruskin University. Until recently, I worked at a BMJ as the editorial scholar, looking after all the content that BMJ student produced last academic year. And for this episode, I'm glad to be joined today by our old friend, Laura. Laura, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Laura, and I've just started F2 in Hinchingbrook, Huntington, near Cambridge. (laughs) Nice to have you back. Thank you. And I'm also excited to introduce our new editorial scholar, Charlotte Rose, for her Sharp Scratch debut. Charlotte, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Charlotte. I just finished my fifth year of medicine at the University of Oxford, and I'm now taking a year out of medical school to come and work as the new editorial scholar here at the BMJ. Awesome. Yeah, welcome to Sharp Scratch. Thank you. And for this episode, I'm delighted to introduce our two guests joining us from Australia today, Prof Charlotte Rees and Prof Lynn Monroe who are the co-authors of the book, Healthcare Professionalism. Prop Charlotte, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you, Pat. I'm delighted to be here. My name's Charlotte Rees, and I'm currently Head of School of Health Sciences at the University of Newcastle in New South Wales in Australia, not to be confused with the Northeast. <laughs> Very different weather. Yeah, welcome. Nice to have you with us. And Prof Lynn, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Pat. Uh, my name's Lynn Monroe. I'm uh, academic lead and professor of health professions education research and convener of Warren Yara, which is a health professions education research network at the University of Sydney in New South Wales. Oh, cool. Yeah, thank you for joining us today. Medicine is a team sport. We work with multidisciplinary teams to deliver patient care. Understandably, we're held to a high standard of professionalism. However, there may be times when you have worked with a colleague who worried us professionally. And I've heard this as being conveyed as, um, I wouldn't want to be treated by, by Dr. X, for example. You may often find it difficult to address unprofessional behavior in a colleague, especially as a junior member of the team. So in this episode, I thought we could be talking about when does this become enough to do something and what do you do about it? Laura, now that you're into the second year working as a junior doctor, have you ever encountered any situations at work where you had to raise concerns about how a colleague conduct their work? I haven't personally had to raise concerns, and I consider myself very fortunate in that there. I've had a lot of really good mm. F1 colleagues. But I work in a very small hospital, uh, a, DG, a local uh, sort of DGH, and so uh, mm. I do know of cases where my colleagues have had to raise concerns about, you know, we were F1s last year, so people who might have been there a little bit longer than us as well. Uh, I'll, but mm-hmm. I'll keep details as vague as I can because it's such a small hospital. No, of course. <laughs> no, and that's good that you haven't encountered anything because I, I wouldn't know how to approach that because this could be a quite awkward situation. Honestly, like I wouldn't have been so sure either. But now that I've heard a few stories of people sort of saying, look, I've, you know, things hashed out in the mess and with a sort of approach of how do I look I've noticed this kind of behavior and I've no idea what to do about it and then ha- things hashed out with a few colleagues at the same time leading to someone knowing what to do next and then being able to follow through with that so I've got a better idea now than I did one year ago no that's good to know and and Charlotte have you encountered anything at med school before no I haven't really actually um but I feel like it's definitely the sort of thing that would make medical students feel quite nervous if they did have to deal with something like that yeah so 
I think learning a bit more about that today will be really helpful actually. Yeah, I think we're in good hands today because um, we have Prof Charlotte and Prof Lynn who've um, researched extensively into this. Um, yeah, and I know you've written a whole book about this as well. Um, would you mind kind of uh, listing some examples um, of um, things that you've heard from healthcare students before? Yeah, sure. And listen, you guys are really unusual, I would say, in that you've <laughs> never come across professionalism dilemmas before. So yeah, we've we've written a whole book on this. To and clarify, Lynn and I, I'd say, sorry, to clarify, I'd say professional dilemmas of peers specifically. Mm. We're oh, in a different of peers. If we're talking about, if we're talking about okay. seeing professionalism at work and how to, to deal with right. professionalism, unprofessionalism in people more senior, that's like a slightly different question. Okay. But among, among peers, that's, yeah. where, that's where I've been quite fortunate. Different, yeah, just to, just to clarify, I've definitely seen cases of unprofessionalism and where I've had wanted myself to act and, and, and wondered myself, what do I do in this situation where I'm seeing someone more senior than me do something that I don't think is right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, Sorry, thank Charlotte, you for, for that. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. But that's really good clarification, because mm. Lynn and I have. Sorry. Oh gosh, we have interviewed many, many <laughs> students, um, and collected thousands of narratives over a ten-year period, and students have always got something to tell us. Really, haven't they, Lynn? And and I think probably the first thing to mention is what 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 we mean by professionalism dilemmas and how they might differ differ from professionalism lapses. So when we're talking about professionalism dilemmas, we're talking about um, the sort of experiences that medical students have, um, where they are almost put on the spot. And they end up doing something that they think is morally or ethically or unprofessionally dubious, um, but they know what the right course of action is, but they don't feel able to act in the way that they'd like to. So it causes them, you know, this dilemma and, and, and moral distress. And that's slightly different from professionalism lapses, which is a lapse in professionalism, which actually might not be a dilemma for some people. And it might be because they don't know actually the right course of action. And, and, I, and what we cover in our book um, is we cover lots of different types of dilemmas, but probably the most common are dilemmas around patient consent, patient safety dilemmas, patient dignity dilemmas. We've got e-professionalism dilemmas. We've got interprofessional dilemmas, um, identity dilemmas. And, and that's kind of what we talk about in our book. And we unpack with students about what impacts those dilemmas have on them but also what they do in the face of those dilemmas which is why I think you wanted to speak to us and um yeah and I know one of the chapters in your book focused on um yeah kind of professionalism dilemmas about a colleague when it comes to kind of compromising patient safety and I think um some of the examples that you listed there included like um you saw uh, a colleague violated the hygiene policy for example and like how do you <laughs> go to and speak to them about it yeah, uh, I was just wondering if you could um, talk a little bit more about that. And Sure. So, Lynn, take it away, because these hand-washing dilemmas were a personal favourite of yours, weren't they? <laughs> uh, they certainly were. First of all, it's really it's a very um, embarrassing thing to have to do, is to pull somebody up on hygiene. Hygiene is something that is a very... You, you can take it really personally. And so um, students are, n are notoriously... Um, not very good at resisting or reporting or or saying something out loud about hand washing. So some sometimes 
um, students tend to um, use bodily acts of resistance to, to actually combat these um, hygiene dilemmas. And so one of the easiest things that students do um, to, to actually correct these behaviours is role model good practice themselves but they tend to role model them using verbal as well as um, bodily actions so it's just kind of like oh uh sh- oh we're just about to do a patient uh, examination shall we wash our hands now um so they'll just kind of like verbally um nudge the the context into a hand washing rather than an examination context i think that's one of the biggest areas charlotte what's your thoughts on that one well, I, I remember, you know, in the face of hand washing things like that, students having to navigate that tension between what they're taught at medical school about how to wash their hands properly and then seeing their colleagues not wash their hands in a way that they've been taught at medical school. And so them having to develop workarounds and often they would talk about doing all the steps that they'd been taught at medical school, but doing them really quickly so that they didn't irritate their clinical educators or their clinicians that they were working with, keep them waiting, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so the act of resistance really there is is a bodily act of resistance in that, well, I'm going to still clean my hands, I'm going to wash my hands, but I'm going to adapt the way that I do it so that it's not as extensive as what they're seeing in the clinical workplace. So the students, and this comes back to the dilemma situation really, which is fundamentally about students seeing clinicians practice in a different way than they've been taught to practice themselves in medical school. And that creates, so there's a big tension between the formal curriculum, what they're taught at medical school, and the informal and the hidden curriculum, i.e. what they are learning in the clinical workplace and seeing their colleagues doing. And that's the kind of the nub of the dilemma, really. Um, but yeah, there was lots of bodily acts of resistance, really, in terms of hand washing, wasn't there, Lynn? But the downside of that is that actually then you start to begin to do those shortcuts yourself as norm. So you you start to do it in the face of a dilemma. You know, well, how, how do I get by this? How do I both wash my hands and not wash my hands at the same time and then what happens is it just becomes part of what you do you then become you know that person who's not washing their hands for the next generation of doctors Yeah, and I know that that is that kind of tension and that kind of difference between what you're taught and how things are done that caused a lot of my peers to feel really disillusioned when we switched from the non-clinical part of our Cambridge course to the clinical part. I know definitely a few people thought, is this really what, I, what I've been working towards? Just finding that daily tension quite hard to handle. Absolutely, and this is what causes the moral distress for students, yes. really, because they know how... You know, you know how you should act, but for whatever reason, and it might be, you know, all the hierarchies in medicine or whatever, that you don't feel like you can act in the way that you've been taught or act in the way that you want to act. And what was really interesting, because we mostly, you know, we did surveys, but we also did a hell of a lot of uh, um interviews and we collected you know thousands of narratives as I said before and what we were able to do was we were able to analyze the emotional talk in those narratives so anger talk 
sadness talk, anxiety talk, as well as positive emotional talk as well. It wasn't universally negative. Um, But we were able to see patterns in our data about the emotional impacts of these dilemmas on students, even as they're accounting them to us, and how that varied from, you know, different types of dilemmas. So consent dilemmas, there'd be a lot of anxiety talk, whereas actually patient dignity dilemmas, there was a lot of anger talk. And so there's huge negative impacts on students um, experiencing these types of professionalism dilemmas on a regular basis, really. Lynn, is there anything else you wanted to add to that about the emotional stuff? Yeah, well, I was thinking about the student abuse as well, where the um, medical students, there was a lot of sadness talk when they were talking about the, their, their abuse. And the other thing is you just said about moving from the preclinical to the clinical years, there was a lot more, um, there was a, there's a greater number of um, were emotional words, negative emotional words with clinical students rather than preclinical students. And, mm. and we think that's because the dilemmas that they experience are much less, you know, they're, they're less frequent in, in the preclinical years and also they're not as... Um, we call it strong not as not as shocking because they're much more kind of they were mu- the dilemmas were much less severe and charlotte was talking about moral distress which is you know you know what the right thing to do is um you want to do the right thing but you feel like you can't for some reason usually hierarchical but other things come in the way in in the process as well and we found um looking at the range of dilemmas we found two different patterns of emotional distress of moral distress we found that for some dilemmas students became more distressed the more times they experienced it so we called that disturbance didn't we charlotte so the more times they experienced it the more distressed they became but for other dilemmas they just got used to it they were like habituated and we call that Mm. habituation they just sort of were like oh this one again. And the interesting thing when we looked at the types of dilemmas that um, they were experiencing, the ones where they were habituated were things around, well, I've got to do this for my learning. So these are these kind of had a, um, a utility. This is something I'm, I'm maybe slightly harming the patient, but if I don't do this, I won't learn. Or I may be, you know, the patient may be uncomfortable or etc but if I'm not doing it I'm not learning whereas for the the ones where students became more distressed and disturbed were ones that had no bearing on their learning whatsoever it was seemed to be just a you know a professionalism dilemma situation that was for no reason that's quite unsettling to hear actually that I mean I can completely understand that uh, uh, something that causes you moral distress and you're not even there's not nothing good coming out of it I can imagine that just getting more I can I can see how this might happen but still it's mm-hmm. unsettling to hear that as a as a group if we feel that there's something good coming out of a situation even when patient dignity or patient safety is compromised that that gets weighed differently over time yeah. I mean yeah. I mean if you think about you know what you learn in ethics and utilitarianism mm. it's mm. like for the greater good isn't it and I think that that's mm. that's maybe what's going on in the mind like you know this one patient's dignity might be a little bit you know um breached for my purposes of my learning or purposes of, for this group of students learning but we have to learn because you know 
our learning will ultimately benefit loads of patients. And so I think that's kind of where it comes from. But often the dilemmas that really did cause that um, disturbance effect, people getting more and more upset the more experiences that they had, were largely around patient consent, patient safety, okay. patient yeah. dignity. Yeah. Um, and there was more cases that, you know, the more times you experience things, students would get more disturbed the habituation thing was less frequent. I see. I which see. is which is reassuring, really, yeah, okay. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, that is you reassuring. Know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll discuss a little bit more about professionalism and colleagues, but that'll be right after this message from our sponsor. Indemnity. You've probably not given it much thought, but it won't be long until the risk of claims and patient complaints becomes all too real. Whatever lies ahead, you need experts in your corner who offer indemnity and a whole lot more. That's why it pays to be with Medical Protection. There's our free membership during your medical school years, our wealth of training resources to help you become the best doctor you can be, and our international experience that protects you during your elective no matter how far from home you end up. In fact, there are many reasons why our members worldwide trust us to support and protect them throughout their careers. And if you're looking for one more, Every week, one lucky new joiner wins £200. That's the average student weekly spend. Just join for free and you're automatically entered into the draw. That's why UK medical students choose to be part of medical protection. You can't blame them, so why not join them? Visit medicalprotection.org to find out more. Yeah, so we started with kind of talking about hygiene policy violation, which could be... um I guess, less serious in comparison to, say, someone actively doing harm. So I, I guess um, one of the other examples in your chapter um, outlined when um, a doctor continues to be doing a procedure that's causing pain to a patient, but then they're not responding to the pain that, that the patient says that they're experiencing. So when you're seeing that as a medical student, I suppose it's like, how would you... I'll talk to the doctor about that and like yeah how would you approach that situation that's the tricky thing that's a tricky thing and Lynn and I and, and, and colleagues we wrote a paper for social science and medicine which was all about which was an analysis of all of our data around acts of resistance and certainly in our book what we've tried to do is we've tried to encourage students who are reading the book to resist but to do so in low-risk ways for themselves. And so there's lots of different ways of resisting, either during the lapse itself or afterwards. And if you think about during a lapse where you might be witnessing a clinician doing something that you think is, oh, my God, this is horrifying and this needs to stop, you have the opportunity, I guess, to do a verbal act of resistance, uh, indirect verbal resistance, bodily acts of resistance, such as comforting the patient while this awful thing is going on. It's quite challenging for students to do a direct verbal act of resistance and say, you know, something to a clinician that can come across as judgmental and that you are criticising them openly about what they're doing. And in our book, we talk about um, what's done in crew resource management, um, which is from the aviation industry, which is encouraged amongst all staff that if something is happening that doesn't feel right, that there's clear communication and, and you're able to say, I feel really uncomfortable about X 
and that you know and if that isn't followed through that you can actually try and stop or halt what's happening and I don't think we probably do that terribly well in medicine I mean I don't know whether you guys have experienced that yourself or you've seen that being done have any I mean, of you seen that being done, Laura? I wondered, mm. I wondered if I might bring an example. Yes, so, so that would be great. We were on the ward and someone who was skilled in ultrasonography wanted to teach us. It was on our first day on this new ward, I think, and wanted to say, look, here's an unusual, uh, some unusual images of endo, infective endocarditis. Come and let's go and have a look. So there were maybe four juniors and then one person more senior who was skilled in ultrasonography who was demonstrating mm-hmm. and uh, having an ultrasound like of your like an echocardiogram can be really sore the probe goes really hard and I'd not really appreciated mm. that until this moment um when the patient was clearly in some kind of discomfort and I felt uncomfortable because I came in sort of popped in through the curtains a bit later and I hadn't seen how this had been introduced and I wasn't c- convinced that the patient knew that this wasn't necessary for her care but was for our learning and so mm-hmm. in that situation, I said, you know, how are you holding up? I did exactly what you said, the sort of the mm. a verbal and bodily act of resistance. How are you feeling? Is it mm-hmm. still OK that we're standing here learning? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are examples of what you said. What you're saying about, you know, being able to speak up. I think something that complicates it, I'm not sure they have in, in airline management, is that you have to raise concerns often in front of the person who's potentially receiving suboptimal care. And I, I don't, I mean, maybe in airlines they have that too, if they want to rate, flag something in front of the passengers and they have to balance it. Am I causing unnecessary fear? Has this already been addressed? What have I missed? So I think, I, I wonder if that's something that makes it like, a, is a bit of a hurdle to speaking clearly and directly about what's making you uncomfortable in a, in a situation rather than these sort of indirect acts of um, yeah. expressing. Absolutely. No, I think you're absolutely right because actually admonishing a colleague in front of a patient, you know, you've got a question, is this the right time or place? It's probably not. That's something maybe to do afterwards when the patient is within, not within earshot. But it sounds to me, Laura, that what you did there was a really sensible thing. And what, what a lot of our students do is mm. they don't feel like they can do a direct verbal sort of, you know, um, response to maybe the perpetrator of the lapse, but they do a lot of things around it at the time to minimise the patient harm and whether that's comforting the patient or, you know, we've had dilemmas, haven't we, Lynn, where, you know, a patient has really given their consent for the students to be there, but the students are like, oh, I'm not sure that consent was real And they've just, you know, said, I'm going to go for a coffee. And they've taken themselves out of the room Mm. because they feel like that's the right thing to do. And so we do, we have examples like that where it's not a direct Mm. challenge to whoever is, you know, perpetrating a lapse. It Mm. is what you do around that to minimise the impacts of that lapse. Lynn, is there anything that, you know, you wanted to add? I guess we could talk a little bit about the four R's that we talk about in the book that that's kind of resisting, role modelling, reviewing um, and reporting. And those are kind of um, ways of tackling these difficult issues. And, and in our book, we do actually give some suggestions for kind of verbal prompts around when we talk about the reviewing. So the resisting sort of says, well, I, I, you know, not going along with kind of those practices, you know, that, that you're not happy with. 
And role modelling, we've already talked about that in the face of um, hygiene, where, you know, they all go off and wash their hands very um, visibly. And then the reviewing thing is really about just saying, you know, oh, you know, Dr Jones or whatever, um, I'm a bit anxious that this, you know, the patient doesn't seem very comfortable or I'm a bit comfortable that the patient is is in pain and then you know um and then you explicitly say what the problem is i think maybe the patient should have some more painkillers do you think that could be you know something that we could do or i think that there's something inappropriate happening here you know you you ex- actually say exactly what is happening and then you say what you think should be done um, and then you also ask for agreement. And do, do you agree with that? Mm. And if there's something really dangerous, you might have to be really quite assertive and say, can we stop now? Can, can we just stop? So, it, it, you know, that, that's one of the issues around um, reviewing. And then reporting is, as you've talked about, raising concerns. But sometimes it that can be done quite gently in in terms of a bit of a debrief with somebody afterwards because you could be quite emotionally distressed and we had to, the opening it's, i think it's the opening narrative in our book isn't it with the colonoscopy the 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 student is is witnessing the patient in a lot of pain and the the nurse is saying you know our oh, patients in pain can we give her more painkillers and the doctor's saying no and the students getting more and more upset because the patient's in more and more pain and the whole thing but afterwards Mm. she does actually uh, you know kind of debrief and and report this with the with the nurse afterwards so there's various degrees of reporting and depending on how you you feel about it but certainly if you're going through a lot of distress at the time some kind of debrief is needed and I think there are you know various places you can get that debrief. And so so I think it's helpful for the listeners to think about what they can do during the event Mm. um, but also what they can do afterwards and for some students they recounted yes absolutely raising concerns after the event Um, either formally by making a complaint or informally by talking to educators and explaining um, their concerns and so on. And sometimes they went back to patients and apologised to the patients, you know, and that was a strategy for students who were very conflicted because they felt like they couldn't do anything at the time. They're like rabbits in the headlights. Oh, my God, what do I do in this situation? But they're left with such emotional turmoil that they're trying to do the right thing, but they try and do the right thing afterwards to try and improve a very unpleasant situation. Um, I've got an example that might show some of the ways that people can debrief after and how that can lead to Mm. help. So a friend of mine had a very acute situation on the ward. There was no time that she was... Yeah, a, a, a junior doctor and having to act in a sort of very urgent way. Um, but it left her with a lot of distress after. So the first thing she did is she came to my house post-nights and told me what had happened. 
then she did a lot of other constructive things to look after herself, basically. And, you know, it wasn't a simple case. You know, there was a, acute urgent management and there were a lot of elements where she was very worried that she herself had done something wrong or that there was something in the system that had led to suboptimal care. So there was a lot of distress about this event. Mm-hmm. And the other thing she did is that she talked to her previous education supervisor. She arranged a meeting and it wasn't for like three or four weeks, but that she did that very quickly. She also went by the BMA which has a, um, a really easy-to-access counselling service where you get put in touch with a senior Fantastic. doctor somewhere else in the country. And you can just explain everything about the situation and have someone senior somewhere in the country just give you a... A, uh, a, a sort of second opinion. A, a second opinion from a sort of healthy distance from the whole situation as well. Mm. It gave you to give you a perspective. The other thing she did was talk to the uh, one of the registrars who was on the same shift to talk through the events and what things mm. happened and why. So someone who was mm. there as well. And what this led to is, first of all, she got had the opportunity to process and hear some important messages about her own practice from, from different sources. But also, importantly, by speaking to her old um, educational supervisor, that supervisor had some really constructive ideas about how to uh, carry this forward. So, for example, presenting it at a, uh, a clinical governance meeting to bring it up to, to further docs in the, uh, in, in the hospital to see if there was any, anything systemic that needed changing. So that's a way that she mm. saw something she wasn't thought was right, she, didn't, she wasn't sure was right, and then mostly to process her own distress, but also as a side effect, this, this led to actually really constructive ways that, you know, let's see if we can prevent this happening again. Mm, that, I think that, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah and it's really on, important that you do so in a safe environment. And so obviously she sought out who was safe and exactly. she began you with can, the, yeah, the exactly. safest. Exactly. Yeah. So and each, uh, the, the registrar was there, someone she trusted, and the someone that she'd, you know, a previous supervisor who she had an established relation with, someone she trusted. And, of course, this BMA service is really, really useful for the people who need it as well. I think this issue of trust and safe places is really important. And one of the things that brings to mind is that, I don't know if you remember this, Charlotte, but there was some findings that we had around um, your willingness to, um, to speak up depended on who you were with at the time and if there were allies or people who you trusted or even the level of seniority. So if they're nearer to you in seniority, maybe, you know, um, it's a first, second year postgraduate person, and you're more likely to feel that you can do something in that space rather than when there's a a larger gap. Absolutely. I think if there's a, if there's a big gap or you're with people in, in, a, in the moment where you're, where you're experiencing this moral distress, in that moment, if you're with people you don't really know or don't really trust or you have this huge gap of seniority, mm. it can be so anxiety-inducing because you think you might be thrown under the bus or you might think that mm. there's something that's your fault that you didn't know that you still yet to learn. You know, even if you were culpable in some way, that someone might turn the screw and be like, well, this is actually your fault in some way, in a way that's blaming and not, not for learning. Whereas if there's people you can trust, then you know that there's a witness who's, who's, who's taking your side and, and wants to help you learn and improve. Uh, Absolutely. Even if there's something that, was, that you could have done differently, yeah. Or mm. you're looking around the room and no one looks like they're reacting mm. and then you think, oh, is it is just, it just me? me that thinks yeah. this is really odd? But maybe everyone's thinking that because mm. everyone's got their poker faces on. 
Mm. And everyone's going away from that situation feeling a little bit uncomfortable, you know, different ranges of uncomfortable, but no Mm. one's shown it. So it's Mm. normalised or it's sanctioned or it's this is how Dr. So-and-so acts and everyone just accepts it. Um, But still, everyone could be going away feeling really quite distressed, but they've just not showed it. Yeah, I really agree. I think as a med student, that's something you see quite often, actually. And it's only talking about it sort of a few weeks later. Um, There was a specific example where I'm thinking of where I brought it up with a a friend who'd been in the same situation as me a few weeks after. And she also said she felt so uncomfortable, but neither of us felt like we could do anything about it at the time. And I think that was really sort of, it was really validating in a way to hear that somebody else had felt the same. Um... But I don't think that's something we're sort of good enough at talking about in medicine, actually. But it's really important that you did talk about it with your friend because then you know that next mm-hmm. time you're not the only one who feels that way and you feel like you've got a bit more power. So even if that situation mm-hmm. you felt like, well, as the med student, I didn't have any power in that situation, I didn't know what to do. Even by speaking to your peers and finding that other people felt similarly, that gives you a bit more courage for next time if you were to see some, I hope you don't, uh, not in that situation, whatever it was, but it, you know, if you are, then you have more ideas. And also by brainstorming with your colleagues, you can come up with ideas of what you can actually do, even if the situation's long past, to at least prevent that happening in the future. And to make you think about what kind of doctor you want to be when you're in that level of seniority. Yeah, definitely. And I think it also helps to like pop the bubble of like, this is normal, because I think that's something that so many people struggle with is like, like you were saying, Charlotte, about looking around the room and, and everybody looks sort of, blank and isn't sort of responding to something that you think is really inappropriate I think yeah that's um that's really hard to see and experience I think yeah popping that bubble of this is normal is quite helpful and that's and that's that's a difficult thing isn't it but how powerful is it in that situation to say is it just me that's feeling uncomfortable here you know, I'm feeling uncomfortable about this. And even if you can't say at the time, speaking to someone else who was, like Laura was mentioning earlier on, checking in with someone else who was there. And it it could be be a a foundation year doctor, it could be a registrar or whatever, saying to them, can I have a chat, please? Because I felt really uncomfortable about that in there. No one else looked uncomfortable. So I'm just wondering whether that was, you know... Normal, um, and and it's then opening up that dialogue for someone to say, no, I I also felt a bit uncomfortable about that actually, mm-hmm. um, because I think um, in medicine you kind of learn to hide your emotions, don't you? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think we've talked about um, kind of actions to do when uh, when it comes to encountering those situations. Um, but I was just wondering if the dynamic could be a little bit different, say when it's your peer of the same grade who's doing something that may need raising concerns so say like an example could be um a fellow GNA doctor um, maybe a little bit shabby with their uh, admin work maybe like patient notes maybe not that illegible and this has been a like, consistent performance um and obviously you work closely with your fellow GNA doctor so how made you raise that and I guess it's that gray area between like a colleague and a friend yeah sure that's always a bit difficult isn't it but when you've got concerns really about anyone it's how you construct that to the other person so sort of direct resolution is always best for so speaking to your peer rather than 
telling someone about your peer or, you know, um, mm. that's really important. But feedback is a gift, right? And this is what the way that I always feel about feedback and how I always talk to other people about feedback. Constructive developmental feedback is a gift to someone. It's not often received as a gift, but if it is pitched in a way, mate, I'm trying to do you a favour and it's reciprocated. So if there's anything that you think that I could be doing better, please tell me. Mm. But I really think that you would benefit from doing this in a different way or whatever. So it's pitching it as constructive developmental feedback, not criticism. So it's specific about mm. their behaviour. It's not attacking them as a person. And you're really constructing it as a, I'm, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you learn, develop. And I want this to be a reciprocal process. So if there's things that you think I can be doing differently, just let me know, please, because this is how we're going to learn together. So there's ways of doing it that will minimise the risk, I think, of someone feeling attacked. I, I didn't want our research to come across as all doomy, gloomy and um, and all negative emotional stuff in relation to professionalism, yeah. dilemmas and lapses. We did actually have positive emotional talk as well in some very upsetting situations and that they came through more when students did resist. They yes. felt empowered. They felt mm. happy. Um, they, you know, even though, you know, acting in these situations is a little bit anxiety provoking, they felt great about it. They felt great. And there were lots of positive ramifications, actually, even from clinicians who they challenged, who were impressed, Mm. impressed that this student had raised their concerns directly with them and who had therefore changed their behaviour, well, at least in front of that particular student. And so it wasn't all bad. Um, across mm. our stories, there were more, um, more narratives where students went along with it or students ended up doing unprofessional things, you know, because they'd been kind of encouraged to do so. There was more of the going along with it, but we did have resistance narratives. And actually in the resistance paper that we mentioned earlier on in social science and medicine, we actually talk about students' participation in our study and them sharing their stories as acts of resistance. That, you know what, even though I didn't do anything about it at the time, I'm going to share my story with you (laughs) and it's behoven on us then ethically to report those, to give voice to our participants, which is one of the reasons why Lynn and I decided with all these narratives that we really need to write the book um, to Mm -hmm. really give voice to uh, the students who participated in our work so that they could help other students, basically. But it's interesting because there was, um, you know, there was evidence through some of our narratives of culture change. And the one Mm. that, the the kind of uh, story that points to that, which always makes me smile, is when... The student at a certain medical school said that when they would rock up on the wards, the clinicians would say, oh, we better wash our hands. The students are here. And because they knew the students would pick them up on it and that it was something really important. But at least it was getting noticed and things were shifting in that direction. Sometimes the student used the medical school as the excuse for, no, I can't do that. 
So, no, I can't do that because I haven't got consent and my medical school has told me yeah. that I'm not to do X, Y and Z. Yeah. It worked for them and it meant that they were avoiding, and these were often inpatient consent dilemmas, where, you know, we've got a whole host of dilemmas of students really doing things with patients that the patient really hasn't consented to or the, or the consent's there, but it's invalid in some way. That's a really positive and, like, empowering message, I think, to kind of round off this episode. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom and uh, the stories that you've shared here. Um, yeah, and before we just uh, end the episode, is there any other thing that you'd like to add? No, nothing from me other than to say thank you very much for inviting us. It's been a real pleasure uh, to come along and, and to talk about our research, which is our favourite thing to do, isn't it, Lynn? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think for me, mostly, that there's there's more than one way to resist uh, like lapses or professionalism mm. kind of... Uh, debates I think uh, it's easy to think that in the moment you do just have to stand up and very directly say something but that's not always the easiest thing to do particularly as a med student with all the kind of uh, medical hierarchies and things so it's quite reassuring to think that you know provided it's not a very serious professionalism lapse there are there are more than one way to sort of deal with that um, either in the moment with sort of behavioural changes or after the event, going back and talking to the patient or talking to colleagues and kind of debriefing on it. So, Yeah, this episode has definitely kind of added more tools to my tool set when I go back. Well, I'm now back in clinical placement because I think, well, like in year three, when I was going on placement, um, like I see things, they're not like serious as to it compromises patient safety. But now that I know... You know, you can talk to your peers about it and then uh, contact the BMA counselling helpline and then get a second opinion, that kind of thing. I think that really helps maybe to strengthen your judgment as well and prevent things from happening in the future. So, yeah, it's definitely been very useful for me. Um, yeah, I want to go back to placement. Yeah, so thank you so much for joining us for this episode and that's all we have time for today. If you like our show, I'd love it if you could support us by leaving a review wherever you get your podcast or share with the people you know. Tell your friends about it. That really helps people to find the show. And keep in touch. We love hearing your thoughts on the show, especially things you find interesting in medicine or at med school right now. You can find us on social media. We are BMJ Student on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. If you would like to hear our episodes, please subscribe to Sharp Scratch wherever you get your podcasts. And in two weeks time, you'll be notified of our next episode. Until then, it's goodbye from us. Bye. 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 Bye.